By now, you've heard about Global Poker, one of the fastest growing online card rooms available in the US and Canada today. So what's stopping you from trying it out? Global Poker is a safe and secure social poker site that uses their own patented sweepstakes model. Signing up is easy. You can use Google, Facebook, or just an email address. You can always play for free on Global Poker, but you can also buy gold coins for additional play, which will earn sweeps coins that can be redeemed for real cash to a bank account, Skrill account, or even as a gift card. Get a free 5,000 gold coins when you sign up right now at GlobalPoker.com. Poker Stories is an audio series that features casual interviews with some of the game's best players and personalities. Each episode highlights a well-known figure in the poker world and dives deep into their favorite tales, both on and off the felt. Welcome to Poker Stories, a podcast brought to you by Card Player, the Poker Authority, and hosted by me, Julio Rodriguez. You are listening to episode number 107, featuring World Series of Poker broadcast commentator Norman Chad. Uh, Norman, along with Lon McCarran, has been the face of ESPN's main event coverage since 2003, when Chris Moneymaker's win helped to spark the poker boom. In 2020, Norman and Lon were both jointly nominated for the Poker Hall of Fame, and uh, finished in 6th place overall in the voting. Outside of poker, Norman has worked as a sports writer for the Washington Post and Sports Illustrated, and he has also appeared on ESPN's Pardon the Interruption and as the host of Real Classics. And as you'll discover in this interview, that's only a small sample of the different jobs that he has had over the years. You'll also hear uh, the stories about his time as a stand-up comedian or as a TV writer and uh, even his failed stint as a blackjack card counter. Anyway, that's enough intro. Here's my conversation with Norman Chad. I'm here with Norman Chad. Norman, how you doing this uh, fine January? Uh, I've seen better. I've seen worse. Mm-hmm. Okay, a little, little bit of a mixed bag there. Um, Let's jump into the podcast because I know uh, my listeners have been uh, waiting for this episode for a while. Uh, they want to hear the Norman Chad origin story. So I hope you're ready to, to dive deep. Uh, yeah, actually, I can't swim and I can't dive, but we can do <laughs> it. We, we'll do what we can do. All right. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. Washington, D.C. I uh, grew up in Maryland. Um what was life like for little Norman? <laughs> it was, you know, I, I often tell people since I became an adult that if I could uh, freeze time at any point in my life and then you're that age for the rest of your age, for the rest of your life, it would have been like fourth or fifth grade. And I would have given up all the knowledge you get and all the uh, relationships and uh, that you have as an adult because things were pretty simple uh, when I was in elementary school and I was pretty happy and there was no pressures of any type. And I remember being worried, being an early worrier, that when I was going to junior high at the time, this was, of course, before middle school, we had junior high from sixth to seventh grade, I greatly feared that my whole world was going to be uh, turned upside down, that I was going to get tougher. And I actually was not that far off. It, uh, <laughs> junior high was a lot more complicated uh, than elementary school. So, yeah, I had a very easy uh, growing up as a kid. Didn't want it to end. Uh, agreed there. 
done with adulting, especially uh, in the last few years. So what were your interests back then? I'm, I'm assuming you didn't uh, grow up wanting to become a poker broadcaster. Uh, no, I did not. Uh, even though, you know, I ended up, uh, the weird thing is that even though I love sports, I was more, uh, interested in watching sports on TV, even than playing them. And quite often my friends would wonder on weekends why I didn't come out to play, you know, street, street ball or football or basketball or baseball. I loved watching the games on TV, which was a foreshadowing of the fact that I ended up becoming a sports television columnist at one point of my adult life. So yeah, I just, uh, was interested in sports and was love school and was almost a straight A student and uh, loved going to school and and had no problems that I can think of. But you st- uh, you stayed close to home for school, right? What was that decision like? Uh, that was not my decision. I had uh, applied to three schools, two of them out of t- town, uh, Northwestern University, Boston University, and American University, which is in D.C., And as the applications were coming back to us, my father sat me down one day and said, you know, we really, it's really not, you know, we're really probably not going to want to afford those schools. So meet me halfway. He said, just can you go to the University of Maryland for two years? And then after that, you can transfer to anywhere you want. And I was really crestfallen at the time. I had no desire to go to the University of Maryland. Uh, I did tell him, Dad, if I go to the University of Maryland, you know, it won't be for two years. I, I don't like change that much. So. I'm sure I'll stay there for the full four. I was correct about that, other than the fact that it took me, it took me five and a half years to get out of that godforsaken place to get a, <laughs> to get a degree. Was that because uh, of all the partying or because you changed your, your focus several times or a little bit of both? No, I, I did virtually no partying. And it, what, what it was is because I did find the college newspaper there, which was terrific. And what I did, which is what a lot of us did, is we would work at that college paper literally 60 or 80 hours a week and just stop mm-hmm. going to stop going to classes. So I withdrew from one entire semester because I stopped to go to class. I took some Fs another semester because I was working on the college paper. So it took me an extra year and a half to get out of there. Yeah, I remember working for my own uh, independent Florida alligator at the University of Florida, although I only took four and a half. So that's a little bit of a in my cap, uh, University of Maryland is actually kind of a, a, a poker breeding ground. Uh, and that, that turned out kind of uh, funny for you that uh, your alma mater churned out so many top pros? That, that actually all happened after I was there. I graduated in 1981. So back then, it was not a poker breeding ground. And it wasn't a very good school either. Uh, and right, you know, it, it's gotten much, much better to the to the point where people tell me I could not even get into it right now, which I find hard to believe, but it's very possible. And then when the poker stuff started in the nineties and then into the new century, yeah, it became a poker breeding ground, uh, which I guess I'm proud of. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's basically Maryland and uh, the university of Waterloo. Uh, yeah. Waterloo. God, boy. <laughs> I mean, no, that's, that's an incredible poker factory. Uh, Canada's finest come out of that school. Right. And actually, again, Maryland, we've had some, you know, I, I actually, I shouldn't make fun of it because we've had almost virtually everybody who's come out of Maryland is a poker player I like and I get along with and uh, they're terrific guys. So uh, I'm happy that they've had success coming out of Maryland. Right. You got a uh, number five all time Dan Smith, Bonomo is on there, Tony Gregg, Greg Merson, you know, and then Norman Chad. Yeah, and most of them, I don't know how many of them graduated from Maryland. I don't think most of them did. Uh, <laughs> certainly Justin did not. Greg did not. I don't know about Tony Gregg. 
Uh, Dan Smith, I think, graduated, but I'm not sure about that either. So, so I graduated, but I graduated again at a much easier institution for higher learning, even though it took me an extra year and a half. So was that a, a journalism degree? No, uh, actually, I was no I was going to go into journalism, and uh, I was going to go into journalism, and I, uh, my first semester, I signed up for a journalism introductory course, and by the second session, I told myself, this is really, really slow. Uh, this is really, really dumb. This is stuff I knew three years ago. So I decided I would take uh, no journalism courses and just learn on my own uh, by various means. And I ended up taking no journalism courses. I ended up majoring in something called American Studies, which is a complete bullshit degree. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, but it was American Studies. Julio was a combination of American history, English, and sociology. Uh, so like one of the courses we took was like sociology of the soap opera or history of the soap opera. I mean, just stuff that was bull, bull manure. So, uh, some of the courses were okay, but again, an American studies degree is not going to lead you into, uh, America's better corporations. But it is the well-rounded, uh, background training you need for a career as a poker commentator. I'm sure. Um, let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the jobs before, before, uh, the World Series, because uh, I read that you were a stand-up comedian for a little while. Yeah, when I came out of college uh, in 1981, I decided late in my college career that even though I love sports writing, there was one particular part of sports writing I hated, which was going to the games. Uh, it was a t- <laughs> I always tell people, <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible living. Uh, you're working at night, you're working in stadiums, you're getting home late, you're interviewing athletes when they're half naked and they don't want to talk to you even if they were fully clothed. Mm-hmm. I didn't like, I didn't like that whole business. So, uh, I thought I want to become a stand-up comic and I, I knew I wanted to become a stand-up comic. So yeah, the first two or three years out of college, I worked as a stand-up comedian, uh, mostly in Washington, DC. Uh, how did it go? The fact that I'm talking to you today tells you it didn't go well, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was very, very disappointed at how overwhelmingly mediocre I was. Uh, I did not do that well. I didn't do it for that long, uh, so I might have gotten better. But it's almost like running backs in the NFL. If, if, if you're not a good running back your first or second year, you're not going to develop into one of the league's better running backs your fourth and fifth year. It, usually you have it or you don't. For some reason, I didn't have it. And uh, I, I was, again, very disappointed because I had prepared for it a lot and could not believe how bad I was on a constant basis. Well, what was your, uh, your shtick, your character? Was it like, uh, was it, was it a character or was it observational? Did you have a, a favorite bit? Yeah, it was more observational. And, and I, I was playing in an area that is harder to do, which was topical political. So I would try to be changing my material a lot, which was mm. a problem because my material wasn't good to begin with. So I, I had a lot of observations and talking about politics with not a lot of punchlines. I didn't have set up punchline, set up punchline. And I just, I just couldn't get it down. So uh, sometimes I had some success, but generally, you know, early on in a lot of the sets I did, uh, I'd lose the crowd. And when you lose the crowd, <laughs> whenever you lose the crowd, you can never get them back. I would often lose the crowd in the first couple of minutes. So I just didn't have a really good, uh, as comedians might say, like a tight five or a tight ten. You know, a five or ten minutes that you travel with that you know is going to work. I had nothing that worked. I just kept throwing stuff out there and try to have a good time, and it usually didn't work. Did you have any particularly uh, horrific heckler stories? Yeah, I guess my worst heckler story, and I got and the other weird thing, Julio, is that uh, I was 
it just makes no sense since I'm, I'm quick on my feet and I like going back and forth with people. I would not even acknowledge the hecklers, which you cannot do. No, um, you can't do yeah, that. You can. they, they, <laughs> they just they just take over the set if you don't acknowledge them or or throw back at them. And so I just keep trying to just you know just plow ahead with blinders on. That was a big mistake. Uh, and my biggest. I wouldn't call it a heckling moment, except something was weird. In this dive bar uh, in Adams Morgan of D.C., where I performed every Tuesday night. In fact, I, I ran the, the Tuesday night comedy thing there, uh, whatever we called it. It was a small dive bar, and uh, during one of my sets, I was the host and, and MC. Uh, somebody threw an egg at me that missed. Uh, hit the exposed brick behind me, and, you know, started dribbling down the wall. But <laughs> I, I, that's kind of upsetting. I, I, and again, I thought it was an inside job. Because, I mean, who travels to a, an entertainment show or a comedy night with eggs to throw at the, you know, I thought it had to be someone who worked at the, at the, at the bar who just got tired of my stuff and mm -hmm. just went into the kitchen and got an egg. Somebody could not have brought an egg to throw it at somebody on stage that night. But maybe it was somebody who had seen my act before and said, I'm coming back tonight. I'm going to throw an egg at the guy. At the very worst, it was a premeditated egg and therefore not a fair judge of you that night. Thank you. It was a premeditated. You know, I've been meaning to use that expression. You've used it correctly. I never thought of it. Premeditated egg. It was a premeditated egg. It was. It was not an accidental, spontaneous egg. This person came with purpose. I mean, think about how bad you'd have to be to get a random patron to get up out of his chair, rush to the kitchen, in a in an area he's not familiar with, and locate an egg. That you wasn't going to happen. Everything you just said was not going to happen. So it was a premeditated egg. <laughs> Maybe an ex-girlfriend or, or ex-wife, I should say. Uh, uh, no, I had no ex. Uh, no, I had. Uh, yeah, I had no ex-wives at that point. Maybe an ex-girlfriend. We will get to them in a, in a little bit. Let's um, let's talk about sports writing and how and how that came to be. Uh, you've written for ESPN, the Washington Post. You had a, a column called um, Couch Slouch. Is that still a thing? Yeah, actually, that just was a thing until several months ago. Uh, and just to correct you, I never wrote for ESPN. Uh, I was lucky enough, being in the Washington area, that I was working at the Washington Post part-time from my freshman year at Maryland. So that's just, that's just, that has nothing to do with, you know, hopefully I was good at it. But if I'd worked in Richmond, I would have worked for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, or I would have worked for the Cincinnati Enquirer. To work at the Washington Post at 18 is very, very fortunate. And so I started uh, working there part-time uh, at, at, and worked there all through my college years, both in the office and covering mostly high school games. And that was probably, again, what I was going to do for a living. I was going to become a sports writer for a living. Uh, what about the uh, TV writing? Because I know you did a couple episodes of Arliss and Coach, which are sports shows, obviously. But uh, was that a dream or just a side project? No, that was a dream. So that was a later dream. So I'm, I'm, I'm working as a sports writer in the 80s after I couldn't do stand-up comedy. I got a full-time job at the Washington Post writing a sports television column and also working as an editor. And then uh, when I got a job with uh, – I got a job at the National Sports Daily, which went out of business in about 16 months. That was a, a daily sports paper to compete with USA Today. And when I got a job in 1992 – to work for Sports Illustrated as a columnist. I could live anywhere I wanted to. So at that point, my dream was to write TV, to write sitcoms, essentially. So I moved to Los Angeles uh, when I got the Sports Illustrated position, where I've been since. I didn't think I'd be here more than two or three years. Mm -hmm. uh, that was 20, 28 years ago. And uh, yeah, it was my dream to try to write sitcoms and create sitcoms. And I did not 
really understand what I was up against. And the, the shows you just mentioned where I got freelance gigs, writing some episodes for Arliss and Coach, only happened because I had a contact who put me in contact with the staff and let me pitch pitch stories. If you don't have a contact out here, you're dead. If your agent doesn't have contacts, I had no agent. And it's pretty much of an inside job. Uh, they weren't giving away, they don't give away the, the positions to people they don't know. They give it away to friends and frat brothers and sisters, mostly frat brothers. So yeah, <laughs> I, I failed greatly uh, in something I knew I could do well. The stand-up was a great failure because I couldn't believe how bad I was at it. The sitcom stuff, I can do very, very well. And I just never latched on anywhere while I was, while I was trying to do it. Can you uh, tell the listeners what episodes those are if they want to go back and watch them? You know, the the Arliss ones, I don't remember the coach ones. The Arliss ones, one was a bowling episode where I created a character who was the Dennis Rodman of bowling. You know, <laughs> I, you know all tatted up, uh, you know, tatted up with earrings and just, you know, a sensation on the bowling tour. Uh, there was probably another one in Arliss. I can't remember the second one in Arliss. Oh, there was one that was... Uh, a boxer. It was based off the Cal Ripken episode. You know, there's a, a supposedly an infamous Cal Ripken thing that may or may not happen. But to to keep his streak alive of his games, he wasn't going to show. He wasn't going to make it to the stadium that night for whatever reason. And so they had a blackout at Memorial Old Memorial Stadium or at, uh, at Camden Yards to keep his streak alive. So the game was canceled. So we had a, a blackout. Similar. I did a blackout thing with a boxer who maybe wasn't ready to box that night. Uh, and then the third one was 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 actually turned into a very special Arliss Julio, and it starred Ed Asner, who uh, his first claim wow. to fame was with the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and he's been. I mean, Ed Asner uh, is still around, but he's been in so many different projects. He plays so Ed Santa As Claus a lot. <laughs> yes, he does. He's a Santa Claus type figure, uh, and uh, and he plays poker. He does a charity poker thing every year, still in Los Angeles for whatever foundation. Uh, I think it's the Ed Asner Foundation for whatever they help. But anyway, he was a, a retire, close to retired, an older sportscaster, baseball uh, broadcaster, play-by-play -play guy, who had Alzheimer's, and so they turned it into a more serious. So whatever I wrote, they didn't end up using. Uh, this episode ended up winning some awards from Alzheimer Foundations. I didn't write a. I didn't end up writing more than a line of it because they changed it all around, even though it was my credit on it. But mm -hmm. uh, I got a big thrill that Ed Asner, who I had a lot of respect for, ended up playing the sportscaster in that episode. You ever uh, see uh, Bill Fagerbaki over there in, in yeah. L.A. playing cards? Yeah, I have. And uh, actually, I, I never walked up to him. He plays No Limit Hold'em, and I, just, I have never walked up to him. I've, I've seen him two or three times. And, of course, I wrote, uh, I, I contributed to Coach when he was an assistant coach maybe defensive coordinator uh and he loves to play poker and, and people love playing poker with him but i have never approached him when i've seen him in los angeles he is uh very approachable or at least he humored me uh when i asked for a photo uh, <laughs> so uh you know don't okay. be shy i will he seemed like a really nice guy and people who play with him say they love playing with him so uh i just hate bothering people i don't know i just hate bothering people so since i didn't have a natural in to walk up to him i never did uh for somebody who watches so many sports and um obviously is in the sporting world i was surprised that you stopped betting on sports in 1984 it remains and i'm getting back into the gambling world now but and i will not be betting it remains the single most important decision i made as an adult uh, i have no no doubt about it i had been betting for about a year and not that big, $25 and $50 bets, maybe 100 at the most. And over that year, I probably was ahead about $1,500. Uh, 
betting mostly NFL, NBA, college football and college basketball and baseball, no hockey, uh, but mostly the NFL. And in the uh, 1984 baseball season, I had a bad week where I lost a bet on Monday and I lost another bet on Tuesday and I doubled it on Wednesday and I doubled it again on Thursday to get my money, but I doubled it again on Friday or Saturday. And then on Sunday, I doubled it again so I get all my money back and I lost all, all five or six bets that week and all my profit from one year was down the drain in one week. And I told myself, I'm a pretty smart guy and if I could lose control like that over the course of a week, this is something I should not be doing. So after I... Went, you know, we always settled with the bookie back then on Mondays. It was a, a, a guy who was a composing uh, printer at the Washington Post. Back in those days, if you wanted a, a, a bookie at a newspaper, you just went into the uh, composing room floor and found a printer. And they, they were a lot of bookies down there. And I had to hand them that money, you know, and I had to go to the bank and hand them the $1,500. Uh, I wasn't married yet. It seemed like $15,000. And I said, I can't ever do this again. And I quit. I went cold turkey. And I've not made a sports bet since then. Uh, have you ever been tempted? Like you just saw some crazy line that you just knew was. Yeah. No, what I did is I just divorced myself from it. It might've been very hard early on. I don't remember being as hard as I thought it was going to be, but I just, one of the reasons I, I, I quit Julio was not just that I lost all that money in one week and lost control in that one week is that I found out that it controlled my life. That especially, you know, back then, and the same thing happens now, when you wake up in the morning, you're wondering what games you're going to bet that night. You take a look at the lines. Back then, you would just look at the lines in the newspaper. There was no internet. And you'd wonder about them all day. And then at night, when the game, if you would bet on a game, and it's a game that you couldn't watch on TV, and quite often back then, it was a game you couldn't watch on TV, you would do anything to keep up with that game. So there used to be, you know, sports updates on the phone where you pay 75 cents to get 60 seconds of scores. And if I was out to dinner... I would go to an old payphone when we were in a restaurant to check on the scores, you know, a couple of times a night. Tell, you know, people thought I either had to go to the bathroom a lot or I had a cocaine habit. Uh, I would just leave the table a couple of times to get updates. So it was just sort of uh, it, it can be an addiction. And I don't think I was addicted, but it definitely was controlling my day. And once I freed myself of it, uh, I should have had a much better career professionally. Otherwise, Julio, because it, it just freed so much time and mental energy not to worry about what games I was going to bet and then not to follow my money in action at night. But you still kept watching the sports. Obviously, yet you wrote a book called Hold On, Honey, I'll Take You to the Hospital at Halftime, Confessions well, of a T TV <laughs> Sports Junkie. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just asking because Mike Sexton was on the podcast, uh, rest in peace, and he was talking about how he couldn't even watch a, a sporting event without having a little action on it. Correct. So there's there's a difference here. Yes, I kept watching. Actually, it was my job to watch it. That's because I was a sports television columnist for seven or eight years. And I could not believe how much sports I had to watch. But there's a difference between watching that for work or for pleasure and watching it when you have money involved. And that's 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 the that's the adrenaline, you know, that's the adrenaline shot that gamblers need. And so they, right. I agree with Mike. And I've talked to Mike about this many times and among other gamblers, they couldn't ever, they couldn't go to a game unless they had action. I, I just went cold Turkey and I could, you know, I had to watch games for work. I got tired of watching games. And the one thing that kept my action going falsely then. So this would have been uh, six or seven years after I quit betting is that I started doing an NFL picks column uh, against the spread first for the national sports daily and then for the Washington post and then syndicated. So for 12 years without making a sports bet and literally just flipping a coin on almost every game, watching those games, I had that interest in it. It was like, you know, sort of sweating your friend who has a big bet 
or ghosting them. I still had action without putting any money up because I had action on every NFL game. I, I wanted to see if I'd win or lose, you know, based on what I was doing in my column. And my column was a humor column picking the games, but I still wanted to finish over 50%, and I did. So I had that action. So that got the adrenaline going again. And then when I stopped doing that column, it was harder to watch NFL games if I hadn't had a pick publicly somewhere. But I really, you know, with going cold turkey was really a lot easier than I thought. I did not need to have action on the game to watch them. Uh, let's shift focus to poker. You started playing the game in college. Um, when did you start taking it seriously? Yeah, we just played social poker in college. And then when I was moved down, moved into D.C., I got hooked into like a 20, almost like a $20 anytime or $40 anytime game, which was just a mix of games. No, no, no hold'em at that time. People weren't playing hold'em in these games. You know, we played some wild card games maybe, but mostly seven stud high low, Omaha, uh, some other basic stuff, five card draw, uh, no, no limit. So I was playing in a, you know, what was a bigger game. In fact, my, my wife was, uh, had gone was starting to go to law school for the first year and we couldn't afford it and i did not like the the payment system and like the vig you had to pay on going to law school so i i pledged to myself that the next year i would just take all my poker winnings that i could and just keep putting them into a bag and see how much money i could make to 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 pay for most of the college stuff uh her law school stuff which was going to be like sixteen seventeen thousand dollars a year which again back then this is the mid 80s felt like hundred thousand dollars a year. So the the second year, I actually had my best poker year to date, and I saved eleven thousand dollars. So that was going to pay for most of her law school, and I wasn't going to have to borrow then. And uh, unfortunately, that was the year uh, that she left me. Uh, to her credit, she took the money, or she we pay. I paid for her law school, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I don't know how she paid for it the third year, her third and final year. But yeah, so I, I got into more serious poker. Uh, in the mid '80s, playing in these these games in in you know in basements and rec rooms and stuff, uh, where you could win win or lose several hundred dollars. But I never walked into a I never walked into a card room uh, until after I moved to Los Angeles, and I didn't and I didn't even walk to a card room then in Los Angeles until after I'd been here for seven years. So I never played poker in Las Vegas when I moved out to the West Coast. I never played poker in a card room for the first seven years I was in Los Angeles, and I played virtually no serious poker. I didn't know anybody out here. So uh, I pretty much stopped playing, quote-unquote, serious recreational poker for about seven years before uh, I walked into a card room for the first time in uh, 1999. Uh, so you get the gig in 2003 to work the WSOP. Before we talk about that, uh, what was your opinion of how the broadcast had been up until that point? Well, there had been virtually no broadcasts up until that point. In fact... When ESP, I was working for ESPN for other other regards, like as a consultant and doing like sports writer panel shows and pardon the interruption stuff like that. So as a consultant, they decided they were going to do they were going to do poker for the first time for more than the one hour, two hours final table presentation they had done for the main event. So they sent me two or three shows. They thought I was a more serious poker player than I was. They sent me two or three shows to look at and to write up notes on. And I wrote up notes on these shows, including the 2002 uh, one, which is the year I started on it, which was with Lon McCarron and Gabe Kaplan. And, and I wrote up a bunch of notes of what was right and what was wrong. And most of it was what was wrong with it. And I just told them at the time, I actually ended up, this was one of my better calls. I, I'm, I'm wrong a lot. But I told them that we don't know anything about the people playing. We need to know. You just can't sit down and start playing. 
uh, one of the shows they sent me, Julio, was a, it was like a Jack Binion Open, and it was Daniel Negrano heads up against John Bonetti, the late John Bonetti. And they were mic'd up at that time. So them going back and forth was really entertaining. So I told them, you got you to hear what the people at the, the tables are saying because that's really interesting. And the third thing I told them is, you know, we don't know any of the cards. You know, I'm a poker player. It's like watching paint dry. I, 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 we don't know what the cards are. So it's hard to watch if you don't know what the cards are. So I was pretty spot on on those three things. And that's, that's the notes I sent them. Uh, I think I told him Lon McCarron was terrible, uh, but we ended up using him anyway. But yeah, I, I was mostly on the production, not on the broadcasters. So those are the notes I sent them. And then it just happened that when they were developing the poker with a production company the next year, they decided they want me to consult with that production company uh, because that production company, 441, uh, had no poker experience. And again, they thought I had more poker background than they did, but I consulted with them for several months. And then they called me out of the blue. And asked me the you know the most ridiculous question I'd ever heard was you ever think of you ever have you ever thought about you know doing poker broadcasting on TV? And they said they weren't going to use a you know, like an ex jock which you usually do you usually use a Dick Vitale a John Madden a Tim McCarver and an A Rod and they said they weren't going to use a, a Helmuth type person for several reasons and I made them I entertained them during the conference calls and made them laugh and they thought I might be good at it. I you know. So you'd so, obviously been on TV by that point, but you didn't have to screen test for this at all? No, I didn't. And I've not been on TV that much. And I actually told him I'll get back to you because uh, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it. And I, when I talked to my best friend about it uh, later that week, he said, why don't you want to do it? I said, well, it's like a one-off and it's poker on TV. And, you know, what the heck is that? And then he said, you're forgetting one thing, Norman. I said, what's that? He says, you really have no career right now. So <laughs> you know, I said, I go, Vinny, that's not a bad point. So I decided to do it. And still had no idea what we're getting into. I thought it was going to be a one-year thing where they told me they're going to do seven broadcasts from the main event, and uh, including the final table. But they're going to do the whole main event, and that's what we'd be doing. So I said, you know, I ended up saying sure. And I had no idea what it was going to be like or look like or feel like. Uh, real quick, who's your boss? I mean, I, I don't know if people out there realize if you work for ESPN or Caesars and the WSOP or Poker Productions and then later Poker Go and Poker Central. Like, who's your boss? So my boss, uh, for most of it, was ESPN, even though I was just an contra independent contractor with ESPN. I wasn't an ESPN employer. So ESPN was my boss, and they're the ones who paid me. After the, the, la the last deal that was done three or four years ago, which brought in Poker Central and Poker Go to do some of it and this and that, uh, ESPN no longer was paying me, even though it appeared on ESPN. So Poker Go, Poker Central became essentially technically my boss, and they pay they pay me, they pay Lon, whatever. So that changed three or four years ago. And we, I no longer essentially answered to ESPN. We'd get notes from ESPN back in the day when we did the tapes telling us, you know, when we'd send it in, telling us, please change this, please don't do this, please do this. So they don't, they don't do those notes anymore uh, the last couple of years when we do the shows. They just, uh, they just air them. So going back to 2003, obviously, you know, big year in poker. What's, what are your thoughts watching it from the sidelines are you going oh this is going to be a thing or are you just like surprised when it comes out and catches fire yeah i was surprised when it came out and ca caught fire but actually just, just to go back to the first day or two i was there uh, i ended up calling my the same friend who told me you don't have a career who uh, it's my friend vinnie perone in in dc who's a longtime washington post writer and he, he used to cover horse racing for the post so i called him up after being in binions for the first time for 48 hours i said vinnie 
you know, where has this been all our life? Because I, I had no experience with tournament poker or binions. I said, you can't believe what this is like. You know, you know, we go to the racetrack and the characters at the racetrack are incredible. These are another set of characters that are incredible. So I was just blown away at the old gambling feel of it. But I still had no idea what the shows would be or look like. Then when we started to receive the first, I think we received the first two shows, me and Lon received it to preview it before we went in to voice it. I remember talking to Lon when I met him, or because I did not know Lon before the 03. And when I saw these ones, I talked to Lon and somebody else and said, you know, all we can do is screw this up. This is really good. I can't believe how good this looks. Let's not <laughs> let's not screw it up. I still don't think anybody would be watching it, Julio. But what 441 Productions did with the original template and blueprint, which they just created out of nowhere with no poker experience, it had a shockingly good look to it. And it also, I could see they're going to tell stories about different players. So I just said, we I hope we don't screw this up. And I don't think we screwed it up, but I still had no idea that it was going to catch fire. Did you and uh, did you and Lon do any uh, bonding during that time to try to get a, a a spark in the booth together? Yeah, we we probably should have. Again, we we naturally got along pretty well at first, which is important, and it's hard to do with somebody you don't know. Uh, so we probably didn't do that much bonding before we sat down in the booth. You know, he came there; he was working a full time job there, so he would not have been there for the full main event the first year. I was there all seven days, however long it took, six or seven days to complete it. He probably came in a few days late. So we really didn't talk much. Uh, we ended up in an odd thing, the on-cameras we do. We taped all of those for the seven shows after the main event final table finished, like at 1 o'clock in the morning. You know, they had the seven shows sort of charted out that they're going to be. And we sat there. You know, We stood there at 2 o'clock in the morning doing these stand-ups for the shows. That's the first time we would have spent any time together. And then we would have done the show, you know, the, voices, the voicing over it in New York uh, a month or two later couple months later but yeah very little bonding with lon before we sat down in the booth for the first time so yeah for those that don't know the how the process works uh how how does the job work in the booth because obviously it's a mixture of some live in-person reactions and then also post-production over the top and uh, the, the the wpt does the live in-person reactions but we never did that uh, the WPT has done that to try to make it look like it's more live, you know, live when it's not. Yeah. We never did that. But what, to show you what a TV novice and virgin I was, so when I got to Binion's the first day and I met the guy who ran 441 Productions, Matt Morantz, and we're walking around the poker room and, and talking with each other. As we walked around the poker room, I said to him, so where, where's, our, where's our broadcasting vantage point? And he looked at me kind of oddly, and I thought to myself, why, why am I using the term vantage point? That's just stupid. What am I? You know? <laughs> I mean, I've never used that term in my life. So I, re, I, I just rephrased it. I said, where, where, where do we do the broadcast from? And he said something to the effect of, you can't be as stupid as you look. We don't do any of the broadcasts <laughs> here, he said. We tape it all, and then we cut it down into one-hour broadcasts, telecasts, and then you voice it afterwards. And I went, oh. Who knew? <laughs> I, mean, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know. I had no idea what we were doing. So one of the reasons I am proud, because I've never done this before, the first year or two that we did it, I had people in the business, in the TV business, TV is their life, and sports TV or entertainment TV, who thought we were doing it live when they watched it. They had no idea we were post-producing it, that we were going back afterwards a couple of months later and laying in the voice track. Uh, so I thought that that meant you know, that we're all doing a pretty good job if they think we're doing it live. Right. Do you ever surprise yourself like uh, watching it back or do they use like a first reaction? Yeah, the, the first 
few years we did it, I, I didn't. I wanted my first reaction, so I took very few notes when when we watched it at home beforehand. Going in, I, I took very few notes. I wanted to to have the same reaction I had when I was watching it, in, you know, on my home, on my laptop, or on my TV. Actually, it was so far back. We would get a VHS tape that we'd stick <laughs> into the VHS recorder and then watch it on the TV. So I did very few notes because I wanted that spontaneous reaction. And so that's the way I did it the first few years. For several reasons, I changed that over the second half of the, the run we've had, and I script almost all of it and uh, just try to pretend that it's live as we did it from the beginning. But at that point, uh, I knew pretty much what I was going to say most of the time, as opposed to the first couple of years where I was just taking it off the top of my head. Uh, this might be like picking between your kids, but do you have a favorite line over the years, one that you're really proud of? And follow up, was there a line you really wanted that they kept vetoing and you couldn't get in? <laughs> Those are interesting questions. Well, Julio, my memory is so bad that I can't remember most of the lines I've had. And I've had people come up to me and quote my lines or tell me it's something, a line about them. And I, it sounds like me, but I tell me, oh, that sounds pretty good. I'm I hope I said it like you said it, but I have no memory of it. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to top as far as poker TV history goes. Uh, the the money maker line after you beat Sammy Farha about you know this is beyond fair time whatever it is I can't mm -hmm. remember it. I can't remember the exact line now but <laughs> it, it involves a fairy tale and improbable uh, but other ones during the years I have ones that I love but I can't remember them uh, on the second half of your question uh, it's not a big deal but again once in a while ESPN would come back to us with notes about things I can't say uh, they don't want me to say. And we had, it just, and some of it just used to, I used to shake my head like someone was trying to just punk me to see my reaction to, really, I can't say that? Mm -hmm. So the year that, uh, I'm trying to remember, this was the second or third year, and I'm trying to remember his name. He was an older guy who made the final table. Why can't I remember his name? Al, Al. Uh, Al Hoy. Crux. Thank you. Al Crux. So he, he had some really good runouts. And so a couple of times, I made a reference, an old gambling reference, that he's sleeping with angels. And I made some some reference off of that, that he's, you know, he's sleeping with angels. And I forget what the joke was off of that, but it has something to do with his wife. They told me that I couldn't make the joke. In fact, they didn't want him sleeping with angels, they said, because he's a married man. And it seemed to be implying that he's sleeping with somebody besides his wife. And I said, you know... It's it's just uh, it's just you know you're running lucky in, in gambling you're sleeping with angels okay that's what it means they said doesn't matter you got to lose the sleeping with angels and then you got to lose your joke off the of sleeping with angels which I don't remember so that was one where I just said eh, this is a tough place but that's happened that that must have happened a dozen or two dozen times over the years where they came back to me and said you can't say this and most of the time I went really because it wasn't anything of you know I'm not going to say anything ethnically offensive racially offensive sexist ageist it was just other stuff and it's just the way it went. Yeah, it's not like you said having sex with angels. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I wasn't having sex with angels. That's the other thing. I think I made that argument. He's just lying next to him. Okay, he's yeah. up there. He's the just up there in the that. clouds. <laughs> and the angels are giving him a lot of good luck. Exactly. All right. All right. So um, we have some rapid fire questions uh, to go. If you're ready to finish it up. Uh, rapid fire is fine. Yeah. It's not really rapid fire. Okay. Um, you were nominated for the Poker Hall of Fame this year. Uh, what was that like? What were your thoughts, reactions? I, I, I'm, I'm honored. It's very nice to them. Uh, however, as usual, I have problems with everything. So first of all, there are many, 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 many others who should be nominated for the Poker Hall of Fame 
before I am. If there was a separate media category or something like that, like the baseball and football Hall of Fames have writers and that, that's different. But for the Poker Hall of Fame itself, uh, other people have got it. You know, I jumped the line on, on getting nominated there. Uh, second of all, it was half a nomination because they is the first time <laughs> they gave it to partners. So me and Lon were nominated together and that kind of diminishes it. You know, Lon, I mean, you know, I have, I've had back surgery several times because I've carried them for so long. So the fact that <laughs> he would be going into the, the hall of fame with me, if we were, if we actually were voted in is kind of disappointing. You know, he's pretty much, uh, I don't want to call him a hack, but he's pretty much hack like, and you know, we have to sober him up during, for most broadcasts and these are broadcasts you know are going to come because there have been voiceovers afterwards so he knows it's coming for weeks ahead of time and he still can't get he still can't get clean before the broadcast so that was a little disappointing that it was him and me together so those two together and i still think the poker hall of fame whole nomination and thing is all screwed up you know they they went back to one person uh, inducted this year and when they have a backlog of people to go in that's a mistake we have a backlog of your nine americans that need to get in there so it's going to take a long time to get them in so i don't like that and i don't like the whole voting system it's like sort of semi-rigged yeah it was tough this year because they didn't let the media vote so i think that hurt you a little bit but you still managed you and lon managed to get 20 votes finish sixth out of 10 oh which i'm is- that's ver- I'm very happy you know again we shouldn't be in the hall of fame and matt savage who should be in the hall of fame if they use the, what they did the previous few years, which they put in two, he would have made the Hall of Fame this year. So he took a really bad beat. But again, there should be a contributors category, a builder contributor media category. And then, you know, guys like Matt and John Duffy uh, would be in there in a heartbeat. Yeah. I'm wondering if this should just be a separate poker media Hall of Fame. Well, I, I guess they, since there's not that much poker media up to now, I guess if you just threw the media into the builder contributor thing, that's fine. And you just put a builder or contributor in every second or third year, and you don't have Matt Savage being you know going up against Huck Seed or Phil Ivey or whatever. It's just it's just he's never going to get voted in, or actually he would have been voted in this year. He got more votes than I thought he would, but then they just reduced it to one person, which confuses me because we really do have a backlog of people that need to get in, and we have another group of people who are going to turn forty in the next few years who are also going to be hall hall of fame worthy. That's what I'm thinking is because yeah, not only do you have that backlog and the disrespect to the European players, but basically all of those first wave online poker people are in their mid thirties. And a lot of them are in the top 20 all time in tournament earnings and are deserved, are deserving uh, of the hall of fame. So what happens in five years when you got another 40 people? Something's got to change. <laughs> just, yeah. Unless they just just to say, you know, we're not going to, we know you're Hall of Fame worthy, but we're going to change it. You have to be at least 75 to be inducted. So everyone's going to have to wait 30 or 40 years because we have too many 50s and 60 year old, 50 and 60 somethings that need to get in first. Yeah, we have so many of these, you know, Justin Bonomo, uh, Phil Galfond, uh, Jason Mercier types coming. I mean, they're just coming like a flood uh, in the next few years. Yeah, man, it's crazy. All those people are now pushing 40. <laughs> Yeah, they are. Uh, the young guns are pushing 40. What is something you wish people knew about Lon? Uh, something, you know, I, I joke with Lon a lot <laughs> that, uh, that I, I, I want to do a broadcast where we do the other Lon. Where it's because like, you know, Lon, by the way, Lon is the friendlier of the two of us. Lon is the more people person of the two of us. Lon deals with 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 the public better than the two of us. He's a normal person. I'm not. I'm more antisocial and stuff. But there is another Lon. I always tell him that gets down and dirty. That would be you know sitting in in an alley drinking Jack from the bottle and just going, oh, "Bring me another virgin." Now that doesn't really <laughs> exist. 
But that other Lon, who, by the way, Lon's got a great sense of humor. He's really funny. I'd like people to see the other Lon once in a while, where he's just not, you know, just the friendliest guy in the world and, and smiling at everybody and, and just being nice to everybody. I wish they saw him more like I was, because there's that part of Lon that's somewhere in there. Yeah, I want a mean Lon episode. That'd be great. There we go. A mean Lon episode would be great. <laughs> All right. Uh, I read the, or I heard that you lost a lot of money card counting. Yeah, it's sh- I don't know how dumb you can be to card count and then s- still lose money. But I stopped card counting after that, and I started to win money. But, yeah, me and, again, my friend Vinny Perrone, uh, we decided that we were going to be a card counting team, you know, sort of a low-life MIT counting team that went to the University mm. of Maryland. We both went to Maryland, and we're not really that smart. So we, we started to do the you know basic card counting, which wasn't that hard. And we adjusted our play based on it. And, and one, since we were sometimes we were playing late at night and we get tired, we'd rotate doing the card counting, the two of us. So one of us would just do it and, and just update the other one on it. And we kept losing. Uh, what also frustrating with Vinny is, you know, not that we were going to get caught. I mean, we're, we're generally, you know, we have like a $10 or $25 base bet. They're not going to throw us out. Uh, we weren't doing the big time card counting, but we didn't want them to think we were card counting. So we would, when one of us had to tell the other one, and sometimes we weren't sitting next to each other at the table, he might be in first base. I might be over in third base. We would say something out loud to let the, uh, the other guy know if where the count was. So it was like a, oh, a, like a code, a code, but he was ridiculous. And I, I remember I, I, I got into an argument with him. So let, let's say that the counts plus four. So he just say, I, you know, I love the Beatles because then I, yeah. you know, they were the fab four, that type of thing. But then he started getting incredibly like cryptic and, you know, Queen Elizabeth, uh, (laughs) Queen Queen Elizabeth on weekends really loves to take a riverboat ride on the Thames. What the fuck does that mean? What the hell are you talking about? I got to decide whether I'm doubling down here and 11 against the nine and you're talking about Elizabeth on the Thames? Yeah. So I I got really mad because he he got real convoluted with his stuff. Well, how deep is the Thames? <laughs> there we go. Hey, that might yeah, that's an old joke actually from uh, uh, the restroom. Uh, I forgot that joke. Uh, that's an off-color joke. But anyway, so <laughs> we, we were losing a lot every time we you know we'd up our bet because of the card count or did a complex play because of the card count. We would lose, so I stopped doing that and I just started playing runs and runs. I, I finally turned it around, just playing runs. Because you need a couple of big runs a night to finish in the black. Just start up in your bet and just hope you win five, six, seven in a row. And bang, that's you know, then you're ahead instead of this card counting crap. And then obviously learn learn to get up. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's I mean, I, I, I actually, when I used to teach people about if you're serious about winning, you it's the opposite of poker, actually. You know, you, you, you can't sit there for a long session. You, you get it and you get out. Because that, that deck turns on you in a hurry. So it's not a real social thing, which is another reason I don't like blackjack as much as poker. You had to, because I want to socialize. I like to talk to the dealers. I like to talk to other players. But you can't sit there for three, four, five hours. It'll eat you up. So you got to get it and get out. And I taught people to have a stop line when you get ahead. You, you, if you get ahead X amount of, you know, 25 units, you're never coming down below 10 units. And then you're done. You're done for your outing. And then they, they would cheat on that. I had one of my good friends would have a stop line. And so he'd put like a black chip in the middle of all his greens and he doesn't come down. If he comes down to that black chip, he's done for the night. But what do we do when he got down to that black chip? He would just move it down lower. And then yeah. oh, that's, that's good, Gary. That's really intelligent. Just keep moving it down lower till you're even. <laughs> you're a moron. So, Good sign uh, of willpower. <laughs> uh, I will never get back the money I lost because I was playing it higher then. 
the money I lost at blackjack in the earlier mid nineties, even though I've won consistently since then, I'll, I played a much lower level. I'll never make back. You know, I lost $20,000 when you're playing blackjack uh, a lot in Las Vegas. And I, you know, I'll never have a year where I win more than $5,000 playing blackjack. I don't play that often anymore. And I used to be betting a hundred dollar minimum. Now I'm paying 10 or $25 minimum. Uh, so I'll never get that money back. Uh, you've obviously been in the presence of athletes and celebrities over the years. Have you ever been starstruck? You know, probably not. Uh, and, and once I moved to L.A., I was amazed at how many you know, famous actors and actresses I would see near where I lived uh, on Melrose, just going to the farmer's market or going to the supermarket. The closest thing I ever become to starstruck, and this tells you how old I am and tells you how ridiculous it is. I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I lived my whole life in D.C., in Maryland, until I moved to Los Angeles in 1992. Uh, so in when I was living in downtown in, in D.C. in Adams Morgan, right across from the Washington Hilton Hotel, I lived behind the Hilton Hotel, which is where President Reagan uh, was shot uh, by John. What's who who shot him? The guy ended up going to uh, uh, um, uh, uh, his name was John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> Thank you, sir. OK, you, you've mixed up presidents and you mixed up uh, would be assassins. But anyway, when there's a guy who thought. Foster. But anyway, I lived right behind that hotel. And when I'd be walking down towards DuPont Circle, sometimes on Connecticut Avenue, I once ran into, he was coming north, it was somebody who ran for president before your time. And I saw him and I was starstruck. I had never seen, like, I was into politics then. I was into government. I thought I might be, become a politician when I was growing up. And when I saw George McGovern, who ran for president against Richard Nixon when I was a teenager, barely a teenager, in 1972, I would have been 13 years old. I saw him walking up Connecticut Avenue, and I remember couldn't wait to tell my friends uh, that I saw I didn't even introduce, I didn't even say hi to him. I was starstruck by George McGovern and just wanted to follow him further because <laughs> I just said, that's George McGovern. He ran for president. That's the only time I was starstruck. I mean, talk about a moneymaker-esque name for politics, too. Oh, you're right, but it didn't work out as well. He was crushed. He was, he was, you know, Trump was talking about a landslide four years ago, and that wasn't a landslide. When Nixon beat McGovern, when Reagan beat Dukakis, those were landslides. I think McGovern won like five states or three states. He was crushed by Nixon. Uh, what about any Hollywood home games over the years? I never get invited to Hollywood home games. Uh, when I do, I turn them down. They're usually no limit hold'em, and I don't play no limit hold'em, and I don't play at the stakes they play. Uh, the only home game I got invited to uh, was Sam, the late great Sam Simon's home game, who played mixed games, and he used to play like monthly or every other month. I got invited to his game. The, one of the creators of The Simpsons, one of the nicest men anybody could ever met, one of the most charitable men. Uh, anybody has ever seen he's one of the reasons i have rescue dogs now uh since we met sam simon mm -hmm. we, we get rescue dogs so my daughter went to the sam simon rescue foundation but sam invited me to his home game and that was all that was all that was that had some stars at that game that had jen tilly his ex-wife uh it drew carey was at that game norm norm mcdonald was at that game a couple of producers and uh that's the only game i ever played uh, I lost a lot of money. I had a bad incident with Norman McDonald. It was such a bad incident that if it wasn't my first time at that game, I would have walked out of the, I would have walked away from the game. Uh, I did not speak for like an hour after the incident. I ended up losing my highest amount I ever lost at a home game at night. I think I lost, I could go check it in my records. I don't have it in front of me. I probably lost like $3,500 at that game. Uh, it, it was a combination of, uh, we played, uh, 
we played No Limit Hold'em and we played PLO. So, uh, and then we played a weird game. Every orbit we played one weird game, which is where I had the incident with Norm. And so, yeah, I ended up losing $3,500 from seven o'clock at night till five in the morning. And I was never invited back, which is amazing because when you lose that much money, they usually invite you back. Uh, but I was never invited back. So I must have done something wrong. Was it the incident with Norm? <laughs> the, I, the, I was the victim of the incident with Norm. So it wasn't the incident with Norm. That's where I just stopped talking and I lost every hand for the next five hours. Uh, it was something that happened with Norm uh, in which Norm angled me, essentially, or just as he, as he told Jen Tilly afterwards when she said, how could you do that, Norm? He looked back at her and said, uh, it's poker. Uh, so it was a weird incident where he you know, lied to me about his hand to break it down to simple things. And I believed him. And so I did something wrong. And then he scooped me in a pot in which I would have, you know, we would have chopped like a $800 pot. Instead, he, you know, he took $800 and I lost, you know, $400, whatever. Uh, it's hard to explain it all, but I could, I was shocked that he would do it. I didn't know he was acting. I didn't know he, I thought he'd made a mistake. I was trying to help him so we could just chop the pot. And he just kept doing his thing. And then I believed him. And so then I got rid of this is what a card. This was a game where you got rid of a card and got a new card. So I broke a pair. I broke a low to get a new card. And then he ended up going my way when we declared and he scooped me. And I could, I was just shell shocked. I was paralyzed. I was frozen. I couldn't believe that he had been doing this act for the past three to five minutes. It took a long time. And I just, I was speechless. <laughs> Man, I, 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 I stopped talking at the game. You know, I didn't. You know, I didn't need to talk that much of the game because other people. You know, Drew Carey's there and Norm's there, and uh, Norm had his biggest night of that game to date at that night. Uh, as I, I was finding out, he won like five k that night. But yeah, I was just. I, I just. I never got over it, uh, and I've brought it up many, many times. <laughs> <laughs> Have you brought it up to him? Because he's been around yeah. poker, obviously, yeah. commentating himself. Yes, he was. So I uh, actually, he's heard about it from some of the other people, and he said it was no big deal. And I, I think we, we finally talked at the World Series of Poker several years later, and I, I believe he apologized to me, or he just brought it up without a. I can't even remember because my memory's bad. But I brought up versions of the story you know, like a dozen different times uh, to people, or on podcasts, or sports radio shows, and uh, so it got back to Norm, and he, you know, he has a different. He doesn't have much of a different version. There's not just not a different version about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah he's just the difference of opinion of what's allowed yeah. yeah what's allowed exactly that's what again what's why jen who who tell you the same story jen said to him how could you do that norm and that's what he said it's it's poker but yeah it just it was like someone taking a baseball bat to my ribs <laughs> I, I just i i just ended up losing and losing the rest of the night uh you were a movie critic for espn no, so what we did is they, they, they had a show called Real Classics, R-E-E-L, where on Sunday nights on ESPN Classic, they did a sports movie, and they hired me to be the co-host of it, uh, first with a comedian uh, by the name of Nick Bakai, and then Nick uh, did it the first year I did it, and they brought in Jeff Cesario, who's become one of my good friends, a really great uh, stand-up comedian, and we hosted it, so we would just come in after commercial breaks and give little tidbits about it. And then I would do a review of the show at the end, like upon further review, here's my review of the, the movie at the end. Love doing it with Jeff. We did, we did it for two or three years. We did dozens and dozens of movies, many of I had never seen before that were fun to watch, you know, uh, like one of... Uh, well, we have a question here when we, yeah. uh, we ask favorite movie. So let's do three. Let's do favorite movie, favorite sports movie, and favorite gambling movie. Wow, that's, that's hard to get down because I used to have to do top 10 for all three categories and it's hard to do the top 10. You know, when we go to sports movie, a lot of people's favorite sports movie is Rocky. 
And, you know, that probably, and I, I, I like Rocky, and it probably does not appear in my top 10, which makes me a different type of animal, unfortunately. Uh, favorite sports movie um, might be, if it's, it's a sports movie, it might be The Hustler. Uh, the original yeah. led to the color of money. Uh, it might be Slapshot, uh, which is hilarious. Yeah, all new hockey <laughs> movie, uh, and you know some of the baseball movies are really good. So, uh, and I like Breaking Away, a cycling movie. So that's my sports movie one. There's you know other uh, you know things like Raging Bull and Bull Durham and The Natural and Field of Dreams. There's a bunch of others that can hit the top ten in Rocky, but uh, those are probably my favorites. Favorite movie of all time uh, is either Godfather Two. Or I'm a newspaper guy. There's a film that goes way back called His Girl Friday with mm. uh, Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, which is just the greatest newspaper film of all time. It's tremendous. So, yeah, again, again you know, on a short list of great films, there's, you know, things like Citizen Kane uh, and Casablanca. But I, I, I probably, uh, yeah, I, I probably. I mean, go Godfather 2 is pretty renowned. <laughs> yeah, I probably go with Godfather 2 and Godfather 1 would be in my top 10 or 20. And what was our third one? Oh, Gambling Movie. Yeah. So Gambling Movie, uh, there's been several that are really good uh, that I love that might not be my favorite, and I'm forgetting something off the top of my head, but The Cooler I loved. Uh, Croupier, oh, yeah, William H. Macy. William H. Macy uh, and Alec Baldwin was tremendous. Uh, great dark film. Croupier is a great dark film. I believe that's maybe a British film. Uh, or it's yeah, that's, um, what's his name? The guy from Children of Men. Uh, he was the uh, yeah, he was, yeah, he was really good in it. He's a really great actor. But my favorite one, hands down, which most people haven't seen, hands down, I direct everybody to this, especially since they unfortunately remade it uh, a few years ago, and it's a whole different mill, is the original The Gambler with James Caan. Uh, it is the mo it's the rawest, it is the rawest uh, depiction of the gambling mentality that I've ever seen. It is written by James Toback who was a great screenwriter who had a gambling problem. Uh, and so it was, it was like his life and it was James Caan starring in it. And it is just tremendous. And yeah. it is, it's, it's just, it's on, it's, it's just by far the best. And when I remade it, unfortunately, I like Mark Wahlberg, but they remade it. I turned it off after 15 minutes and said, this is a piece of, this is a pile of uh, doo doo. Here's what I'll say. I agree with you on the gambler, but I think the Wahlberg version is better than people think. I so I did, you. you might be right because I did give up on it 15 minutes. The in, problem I is it, I won't watch it again because it made me feel sick. You know what I mean? I, it's kind of the same feeling I got from Uncut Gems. Same. I don't know if you Uncut, saw that yeah, one. I, I, I hated Uncut Gems. Uh, it was, first of all, it was just too loud, but it made me feel sick the whole film. Yeah. And I could not wait to get out of there. I could not wait to go home and take a shower. But Adam Sandler, I thought, was terrific in it, but I thought it was a terrible gambling movie uh, in general. And I just think the original Gambler is Un, is unparalleled for me. Yeah, it, it was, I think, with Uncut uh, and even The Gambler, it, there's just too much familiarity. Like, I'd seen it in person too much right. for me to want to watch two hours of it on the screen. I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's just, uh, that's me, but let's see here. What do we have? Oh, what was your largest non-poker wager? Largest non-poker wager. I don't make a lot of wagers. I just made – a friend of mine talked me into making a bet. Uh, as many poker pay, players made bets this election season. And a friend of mine asked me about some odds he was getting on an odd bet, which ended up becoming a very popular bet. And I told him those odds are ridiculous. you got to take it. And he talked me into taking it myself. 
And I said, that's like a sports bet, man. I don't want to make the bet because I don't bet in sports anymore. He says, this isn't a sports bet. It's a political bet. So <laughs> I just la- I just laid uh, before, you know, about a month before the election. I laid uh, three to one odds. I laid $3,000, which is the most I would have ever wagered on something, to win $1,000 that Trump was not going to resign if he lost the election. Trump was not going to resign. And then Pence would, uh, Trump had to resign and Pence would have to pardon him for me to lose the bet. And this became a popular bet, and some offshore books took this bet as well at bigger odds than three to one. So I just won. We finally, yeah, you know, three to we, one's great. Three to one was ridiculous because uh, the reason, the other reason my other friend thought even more of it uh, was because he thought Trump was going to win the election. I didn't know who was going to win. I knew that I knew that 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 Biden would get well more uh, popular votes than him. But the, as the election itself, I thought it was a toss up. But my friend definitely thought Trump was going to win. So then it's, an, it's a no brainer to bet. Because if you think Trump's going to win, then that scenario can't ever happen. But then the that thing that if he loses, that he resigns so he, that Pence can pardon him before the inauguration day. We had a sweat on that all the way up to the inauguration day because Trump is that <laughs> Trump is a different animal. He was certainly capable of having that done. So uh, that was the largest I had ever wagered three k, and I, I won one k on it. Uh, do you have uh, a celebrity doppelganger, or maybe even growing up, did people tell you you look like somebody? Uh, no, but as an adult, you know, my, my current wife tells me that if I was in, if someone played me in a movie, she wanted either Wallace Shawn or, uh, Paul Giamatti. Just to think about that. Paul Giamatti, probably more than Wallace Shawn, who's uh, certainly much older now. Uh, Paul Giamatti would be closer to my age. Uh, and actually I saw Wallace Shawn at LAX. A few years ago, and my, my wife is in love with him. So I, I called her from the cell phone and said, do you want me to go up to him and so you can talk to him? And I forgot what her answer was. She said, inconceivable. <laughs> As she should have. And that's, that's, by the way, that's on my top 10 films of all time. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I don't know if I had that in mind when I uh, used uh, Beyond Inconceivable because that, that inconceivable thing that he keeps saying is so good. Uh, I do know I did one of my favorite bits was doing uh, Manny Patitkin's, uh, you know, my name is uh, Indigo Montoya. Yeah. You, you killed, killed my, my father, father. prepare to die. I think I did this with Carlos Mortensen one year or somebody else. I did it like five times because I love that line. But anyway, so yeah, Wallace Shawn or, Bar- or, or uh, Paul Giamatti. And I'd pick Paul Giamatti on that one. I could see Paul growing out the mustache, rocking the, the glasses and, and doing a good job. Maybe a little bit more neurotic than you are, but it could work. Yeah, I'll take him, though, because I just, I mean, anybody's better looking than me. So mm-hmm. I'll take anybody who's willing to do it. And if Paul Giamatti's willing to do it, I go, let's do it. Let's go. Uh, how often do you get called Chad Norman? Uh, uh, even going back to junior high school, I went to high junior high school and high school with a guy named Brad Norman. I was Norman Chad. He was Brad Norman. Mm-hmm. And so I had teachers who would call me Chad. I had bosses at the Washington Post who would call me Chad. And I had bylines. They thought my first name was Chad. So I still get called Chad, Chad by a lot of people. And they, you know, sometimes they correct themselves and they feel embarrassed. I tell them, don't be embarrassed and blame my parents. And uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so a lot, a lot more than, uh, than I would like over the course of my life. But I got used to it. What's your middle name? A, uh, it's, it's a is the initial. A, yeah, a- A-L-A-N, Allen. So, uh, yeah. I never considered Man. going with that. Three first that. names. Three first names. And my mother, when I started to get bylines in the newspaper, she wanted me to use my middle initial or middle name because she said we should be proud of who we are. I go, Mom, people, you know, people don't use, you know, some, <laughs> most people don't use their full names. And then she went out and she found people who use their full names. She showed them to me in the newspaper. I said, okay, Mom, we're not doing that. We're just going with Norman Chad. <laughs> 
Speaking of moms, uh, like like uh, me, your mom is Cuban. Yes, my mom is Cuban born. Came over here uh, when she was about twenty or twenty one years old, and and she is uh, she just celebrated her ninety third birthday oh, last July. So she she still has a Spanish accent, and she <laughs> still speaks better Spanish than she does English. But uh, yeah, she's been here uh, for seventy odd years. Do you speak Spanish? I mean, I'm not sure if yeah. people look at you and get the uh, the Cuban vibe, but they don't. In fact, I could, you know, I could obviously I could uh, put Cuban American or Latino or Hispanic on on forms, you know, when I'm, you know, job applications and stuff. They don't get the Cuban vibe. They thought I was making it up when I was growing up. They thought I was making up two things: is my mother was Cuban and my father worked for the Internal Revenue Service. And then you put on those things when you, you the first day of school and you know father's uh, place of work, Internal Revenue Service. And then you put father's profession and it was psychologist. So they, I got called up for the teachers a couple of times saying, you know, we're not putting jokes on here, Norman, you know, the IRS. <laughs> and I actually came up with my first joke back then. I said, oh, no, he analyzes tax returns. <laughs> but he, he was an industrial psychologist. He was in personnel management, so which I didn't understand what that was growing up. But people thought I was putting fake stuff on my these things when we were in elementary school because I put my mother was Cuban. My father was a psychologist for the IRS. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and both were true. But yeah, so yeah, I don't get the Cuban vibe. Yeah, my father, one of his dumbest moves ever was he didn't want us speaking two languages in the house because we, we want to make sure we were fully anglicized. So he wouldn't let us speak Spanish in the house. So I speak decent Spanish, but I'm not fluent because I wasn't, I didn't grow up just listening. I just grew up listening to my mother talk on the phone to her sisters or brothers. Mm -hmm. And it's an embarrassment to me that I do not speak fluent Spanish, which you are supposed to speak fluent Spanish, Mr. Rodriguez. Yes, with with my name, I and growing up in Miami, I kind of had no choice. <laughs> you were that's that was a big advantage you had. I grew up in the suburbs of Maryland where nobody was speaking Spanish. My so, uh, my abuelos were very upset with me, <laughs> and they should be. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I regret that I don't speak fluent Spanish, but uh, I speak Spanish well enough that I can uh, do what I have to do when I have to do what I have to do. Uh, we have a few more here, and then I'll let you go. Okay. Um, if it, if you weren't doing commentary for poker, what sport would you like to do commentary for? Uh, that's easy. Believe it or not, bowling. Uh, <laughs> and I actually would love to have done, you know, NFL football, uh, any of the sports, and do it in a poker style. People used to tell me that I was disrespecting poker because I was doing it more for an entertainment and not talking about the strategy so much. I would have, you know, I wrote a sports TV comp for a long time, Julio. I hated the over-analysis of all this stuff. You know, I just wanted to watch the game, and, and if their people are, are, are funny or friendly, that's fine. But I didn't want, you know, I didn't want Tim McCarver telling me about the short hop and how the sweep tag, and let's, I didn't want all that. So I would, I would have brought a poker mentality to other games, and the one that I would most love to do it for is bowling. I love bowling. I love TV on bowling and bowling on TV is not terribly popular anymore. And I'd love to take it, my approach to the bowling telecasts and have more fun with it. Bowling, I think has a personality problem, right? There's basically only one Helmuth in the whole sport. Yeah. Uh, pretty much actually when I saw him, when I first met Helmuth and saw what he was like, I compared him to friends of mine to John McEnroe and Pete Weber, the bowler. Pete Weber, that's what yeah. it was. Yeah, Pete Weber, the same thing, uh, and they're very, very similar. You know, just just bad sports when they lost, and always yelling at other people. And I love Phil now, but he still is a bad sport when he loses, and he's still <laughs> yelling at other people. But yeah, so bowling had Pete Weber, and the other problem with the bowling telecast for years is that the way it worked is that only five bowlers could get onto the telecast every week, so it was hard to build stars. Because you'd have dozens and dozens and dozens of good bowlers. They'd have 20 events, 
a year and only five people would make the TV, the, the TV tele, the telecast. And so your best bowlers would only make it two or three times a year. So, it, so they, they had to change that a bit. So that was another problem they had. But bowling back in the day before cable, bowling was a force, Julio. It was on only once a week on Saturday afternoons with Wide World of Sports on ABC. And that 90-minute block, that killed everything in its sight back then. It would beat college basketball, you know, because you can see college basketball many more times. It would beat college football. The bowling telecast would get a solid rating along with Wide World of Sports. I will admit it's mesmerizing to watch, especially because they, they get so many strikes. <laughs> well, I, the reason I also think it's a great sport is because it, it goes, it, it's, it's, it's over so quickly. You have the beginning, the middle, and the end. Every 20 or 25 minutes, you have conflict resolution. And sometimes you have great finishes. And then so in one 90-minute telecast, you would have three or four matches. And I just thought it was easy to watch and you move on to the next match. You know, you'd have to go through a three-and-a-half-hour baseball game that usually was lopsided. Uh, are you superstitious at all? Uh, a little, but not much. Uh, for instance, when I used to flip a coin on the NFL picks I did, I used the same, 50, same Kennedy half dollar for 12 years because it was working so well. Uh, I would do things like that in blackjack where if I was doubling down and if it was working because I didn't look at the, you know, sometimes the dealer will offer, will offer you, you want me to keep the, the card down uh, till we see my card. And I say, sure, if that was working, I keep doing that. But I stopped being superstitious on most stuff. My only superstition left in poker is any time in live poker that I am buried and I am making my way back with one of two, two people there used to tell me, man, great comeback, Norman. I said, Oh man, I will never win a hand now. Don't tell me great hmm. comeback. I'm still down, and then I, I'm always superstitious about that. So if I'm down seventeen hundred dollars and I've made it back to minus two hundred, and then they tell me great comeback, I ain't gonna get to even. I'm superstitious about that for some reason. All right, guys, if you see Norman playing, do not congratulate him on the stack, no matter what. <laughs> uh, weirdest place you've ever played poker for money? Weirdest place I've ever played poker for money. Uh. I'm forgetting some places, but when I worked, I worked one summer uh, for three and a half months in uh, Rome at an English language newspaper when I was a, a college student, and uh, it was one of the greatest jobs I ever had. And I got oh, to say, you in, speak in Rome. Italian, so I got I got really good in Italian then, uh, which is not that far off from Spanish. Uh, a lot of similarities, so I love that job. And uh, we played poker uh, outdoors. I had not played poker's outdoors before, and it was in the summertime. We played poker on the balcony of uh, a guy's flat that he had on the second floor. His, his, the person who was renting out the place would not allow him to play inside. We don't know why. Uh, so we played on the balcony of this Roman apartment in Rome. And it was not windy that night. And I remember drinking. We had Heineken's. And we had to. We did not have chips. I had to create chips, uh, which I created chips through some like not it wasn't silverware inside the flat but it was something from the kitchen that i created chips from so it's you know playing outdoors in rome in 1980 uh was as good as it gets yeah and, and uh i was not keeping my records yet so i don't know if i won or lost i didn't start keeping poker records in 1984 but yeah that was a beautiful setting it had that rome that rome sky we used to talk about uh back then it was dark blue that uh, that just turned to black and it was so it just, I just felt like I did live forever, you know, drinking, yeah. drinking wine and beer, playing in Rome outdoors. What is your bold prediction for poker's future? My bold prediction, it's not a bold prediction, but I've always told people that if and when poker was legal on a national basis, again, online, 
we would have another poker boomlet. Now, the way it's working right now, it's drips and draps with different states getting legalized. And California is still a huge uh, stumbling block. Uh, but I, it's not going to happen quickly uh, on a federal level. It never was going to happen quickly on a federal level once we got screwed by UIEGA or whatever that, that act was. Uh, so we will have poker. Poker is incredibly healthy despite all the, the, the blows to the head it's taken, Julio. It's still incredibly healthy on a live basis. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of illegal games going on, particularly online now, or games that are sort of below the surface. So poker is really healthy. So if it ever gets to the point again where it is legal everywhere, we're going to have another, you know, poker. There's been poker booms around the world now. And poker players around the world have surpassed us in online skill because they're, they're playing and uh, we can't. So I do believe poker's in a really good spot for the future uh, as long as people don't get too greedy, uh, different sites and uh, live rooms don't get too greedy as well because they keep taking bigger, bigger take out of the pots. And there's got to be enough is enough. It's got to be enough at some point. Yeah. All right. We end the podcast the same way every time with a question from the random question generator. Do, 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 do. You have an RQG? Oh, yeah. Wow. Specifically built for this podcast. It's definitely not a website I just go to every time. <laughs> uh, all right. Here we go. What is your best story from a wedding? That's, that's not fair. It doesn't I, have to be your wedding. Yeah, I know. I can't tell you how many good stories I have from weddings, and most of them aren't from my weddings. Uh, on... on, on uh, do we want a good one or a bad one? Uh, okay, let me just let me just tell a happy one because okay. my, my my current my current marriage, which should be my final marriage, I hope it's till death do us part. Even if one of us kills the other, so yeah. I got married to Tony. Uh, I got lucky. She was like an angel falling from the sky. Even though she wasn't sleeping with angels, she was yeah. an angel falling from the sky. <laughs> and we we got married in 07. And she used to come out. She's a caterer chef. And she started doing catering, catering for the ESPN crew. She did it like, you know, over the course. We would be there most of the summer. She'd do it for like five or six nights over the course of three or four weeks or something. And so she got close with the crew. And we were together at the time, but we were not married. And somehow the crew talked us into getting married on the off day back then uh, of the main event. When there might have been an off day between day one and day two or day two and day three. They decided we should get married at the final table, at the feature table, they would film it and we would do it. And on about 10 days notice, we decide, all right, let's do it. So what? one of the lead producers got one of those, as it turns out, fake online licenses you can get uh, that allows you to marry people in a certain state. It turns out that that's not even legitimate. So we're really not married. So in, in 07, at the, at, in the Rio, in the Amazon room, at the feature table, Filmed by ESPN, by the 441 production team. And then they made a 10 or 12 minute tape of it that they gave to us afterwards that looked just like a poker telecast. With Lon doing the intro and the closing, we got married in front of me, uh, in front of her two small children at the time, who were probably like seven and five, and a handful of people. And Marcel Luce, just wandering through the Rio that day, 
was one of the uninvited guests. He, he came in and he watched the whole thing just because he walked into the Rio. On the, nobody would have been there. It was an off day for the World Series. Yeah, I would uh, say it was Jerry Yang, your best man. I mean, <laughs> what's going yeah, on? Jerry, Jerry, we did not know Jerry Yang was going to win. Else we would have made him the best man. And so that was really a happy, happy day. And I love that we have it on film. And uh, I love that it was done with all the people that were, were so close friends with at the time in the poker community. And it was just terrific. And so far, we're still married 13 and a half years later, which is just Bob Beeman, the record for longest marriage I've ever had. She just crushed the record. <laughs> Tony's done a great job because she should have left me more than once before now. Yeah, but I got to say, like, uh, you know, third marriage, I guess you weren't going to call the shot. You had to be pushed into it by all your coworkers. <laughs> well, we, we, we were going to get married. We just didn't know when. And it just made sense, it seemed. Now she complains we didn't have a real wedding, and we have to have a real <laughs> wedding. And, oh, my Lord, I don't want to go through that again. But, yeah, uh, it was a great idea by the coworkers. And it, uh, it was, you know, probably, you know, it's got to be top three happiest day of my adult life. Awesome. Norman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing the stories. It was a pleasure. You know, I'm, I'm glad you finally got around to me. Uh, I know you were looking uh, to, to, to interview some people who had passed away at this point, uh, and then you finally got to me. I appreciate it. <laughs> That's it. That is the show. Thank you once again to Norman. You can see him on the upcoming broadcast of the 2020 World Series of Poker main event sometime in the uh, next few months, or you could listen to him on the Gambling Mad podcast or follow him on Twitter at Norman Chad. You can also follow us on Twitter at CardPlayerMedia or at Poker underscore Stories. Before you go, please go ahead and click the subscribe button. If you've already done that, then please consider scrolling down to the bottom of your podcast app and leaving us a nice five-star rating and review. If you do that, let us know you did so with an email to PokerStories at CardPlayer.com and we'll say thank you with a free digital subscription to Card Player Magazine. Thanks for listening.